Welcome to episode 13 of the Media Spot podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and today I'm joined via Skype by a very special guest, Steve Redhead, Professor of Jurisprudence in the Faculty of Arts at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, Australia. Many listeners will know Steve by name and reputation because of his distinguished international record in the study of popular culture, subcultural studies and cultural theory with a particular emphasis on French urban and cultural theorist Paul Virilio. He's been especially active in the study of football or soccer fandom in the United Kingdom over the past three decades, which we will speak about shortly. In offering an introduction to his many activities, it's hard to know where to start, given his seemingly inexhaustible productivity as a researcher, teacher and media commentator. He's the author and editor of 16 books dating back to 1987, with titles including Football with Attitude, Unpopular Cultures, The Birth of Law and Popular Culture, Post-Fandom and the Millennial Blues, The Transformation of Soccer Culture, We Have Never Been Postmodern: Theory at the Speed of Light, and his latest, which we'll be speaking about in detail, Football and Accelerated Culture, This Modern Sporting Life, published by Routledge. He was the director and founder of the Unit for Law and Popular Culture and the Manchester Institute for Popular Culture at Manchester Metropolitan University. He has been Professor of Sport and Media Cultures at the University of Brighton and Professor of Interdisciplinary Legal Studies at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. He has also conducted professional and advisory work for the likes of the BBC, Granada TV, Manchester City Football Club, Factory Records as well as chairing the Creative Industries Task Force for the State Government of Western Australia. I recommend that listeners take a look at Steve's personal website, which offers a more complete picture of his research and activities. It can be found at the following URL, www.steveredhead.zone. Steve, thanks for joining me for the Media Sport Podcast Series, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much, Brad. Really pleased to be with you. I'd like to start by going back to the beginning of your career. How did you come to study popular culture and why did it come to matter so much to you personally and, and of course, politically? Yes, it's, it's a good question because the background that I had was, uh, I, I had a, an elite law background. Um, so I did law, I studied law at the University of Manchester for my first degree and my master's degree, really elite black letter law, positivist type law. Um, background, and then I went to Warwick University in the UK to do my PhD. And at that time, basically, law and criminology, which was what I was studying, broadened out. They it became more sociological. So developments like sociology of law, sociology of deviance, which were really the movements that I became part of. Um, they 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 captured my interest. So there was. National Deviancy Conference, for example, in the UK, which has now been revived, interestingly enough, in the last couple of years. But at that, in the late 60s, early 70s, was an incredibly powerful movement for people who were interested in criminology from the left. And also the same was true of law and sociology of law. So there were these twin movements. But nobody was really looking at what I would, I would have described then as popular culture. I was interested in it as a fan. I was a music fan. I was a sports fan. But basically, those two movements weren't really looking at those things. Academics didn't really, in those areas, didn't really write about those things. And I got interested in them, particularly on my PhD at Warwick, 
which was looking at, from a sociology law and criminology point of view, uh, football culture, both fans and players, soccer culture, as, as we would call it. And I think that's what really triggered me. And it was partly because I thought those two movements, which were interesting, sociology of law and, national, and, the, and sociology of deviance, I thought they didn't really have anything to say about popular culture. So I kind of mashed those things together. And much later, you know, I was the first professor of law and popular culture in the world in the late 90s. And law and popular culture now is on, you know, law curriculum, sometimes called entertainment and sports law. So it took me a long time, but I actually did have some kind of influence. <laughs> and like many of us who think and research, think about and research sport, you once played um, football with varying levels of seriousness. Now, at the start of the book, you, you start in a really nice way. You describe a time in your life when you played for what you term the venerable A-Town Wanderers. Could you tell us who the Wanderers were, what you were doing with them and what their linkages with what you describe as hard left politics? Yes, and... Um... I mean, it is interesting. I did start off in a kind of popular memory way, uh, this most recent book. And it was partly because I was, I suppose, trying to justify to myself how I'd done ethnography, particularly, although I chose other research methods over the years. But the ethnography, particularly when I was young enough to do partisan observation on fans and gangs. And it made me think back to how I'd started. And basically... My first academic job, which was at what was then called Manchester Polytechnic, was in fact um, at a site, a campus called A-Town Street, which is in the middle of Manchester. So anybody who's been to Manchester will know that street. And A-Town Wanderers was the staff team. And they actually had two staff teams. Um, and I was, I was a keen sportsman. I wanted to play as well as teach. And a lot of the um, the first team basically was, you know, was a, a reasonable team and they played competitive, uh, you know, the usual kind of masculine football, went for a beer and a curry afterwards. The second team, however, was full of hard left uh, people who went to uh, uh, capital reading, Marxist capital reading groups, sold left papers and so on. And the, that second group of people who played in Juventus kit, by the way, um, black on my stripes, we were really stylish. When I played for them, it was a completely different experience. And they called things like competition and, you know, getting up the ladder, they called those things bourgeois concepts. <laughs> and you really had to, but it was like a socialist community. And I think it's quite interesting that in Britain, which I do write about in the book, now, I'm not so sure that it's caught on globally, but in Britain now there's an anti-modern football movement, which is basically for fans and players who say, we'd rather stand than sit, we'd rather, we, we don't like overpaid players, we don't like the corruption, the greed, uh, and so on in sport in general, but football in particular. So there is an anti-modern football movement. And I do write about it in the book. And I think that what I was talking about in, in the players that I played with, staff players who I played with, were at, is actually an early part of the anti-modern football movement. And I think that's something in sport area, which we're obviously both interested in. I think there's something politically that's happening. There's a tectonic shift where in the past, spectators were, were just dupes, basically. They were dupes of the industries, soccer industry, but the same with AFL, uh, rugby league, um, 
rugby union and so on. And I think actually that is now um, undergoing a change. So there is a, a, a more radical movement going on. I think, you know, it's uneven, but I think there's something really interesting there. And I saw the seeds of it in, in that team. And it's sort of interesting you mentioned the anti-modern football movement because you actually spend a, a, a good part of the book speaking about life after the global financial crash, uh, yes. the GFC, yep. and the need for you know new disciplinary tools and resources to, to make sense of, of what's going on in yep. football culture and sporting life. You offer the idea of claustropolitanism as a response. Could you speak to that and explain how it connects with this context? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That's what I'm, I'm certainly trying to do, to get a, uh, a new set of concepts. I've been working on some of these things for quite a while, and their explanation within sporting culture is probably quite new, but at least I do try and apply them to this new context, and certainly the empirical research that I've done in sporting culture. But I think Claustropolitanism as an idea is what I would call the post-cultural, uh, sorry, post-crash cultural condition, and it's the feeling that people just want to get off the planet. <laughs> to put it simply, uh, maybe that's just me, but um, I think the, the effects, the uneven effects of the post-crash uh, condition since 2008, and I don't think we've really seen them in Australia in all their glory. But certainly you can see them in Europe and the reaction of you know, political parties in Spain or Greece or even in the UK now, which are against austerity. I think that's what I'm talking about. But it actually comes from the idea of claustrophobism came originally from Paul Virilio, who's a French theorist, still alive, who I think, it, despite his flaws, is still quite an interesting character. And he came to a point where he said in, in the, the late 2000s, that we were moving from what he called cosmopolis to claustropolis. And it was out of that kind of pregnant, pithy phrase that I picked up this idea that I developed as claustropolitanism. And I think for, for Virilio, the idea of cosmopolis is interesting, actually, because you know we have a cosmopolitan sociology, what we call cosmopolitan sociology. Really good theorists like the late Ulrich Beck, um, people like Anthony Giddens, John Uri, and there's a whole cosmopolitan sociology which has developed over the last 20 years, say in journals like Theory, Culture and Society. Uh, you know, we can go through all, all sorts of academic developments. But I think there is a body of work called cosmopolitan, which I would call cosmopolitan sociology. But I think the interesting thing for me was that although we want to be cosmopolitan, those cosmopolitan sociologists didn't explain the the um, the crash in 2007-8. I don't think they had a, um, a conceptual apparatus that developed that. And actually, they've become really almost mainstream, in my view, even though I followed them, even though I read them, met them, and so on. I felt that there wasn't really a radical sociology, say, of sport, but a radical sociology anywhere that was explaining something like the crash of 2007-8 and its massive global effects. And I think that was true of all the disciplines and the sub-disciplines. So what I was trying to do with this um, phrase of Rilio's was to try and move us on, somehow to move us on to new concepts, new explanations. And I've been working on some of these things for quite a long while before the crash, and I just thought 
that there was suddenly, you know, a real need for this stuff. And I think there are particular theorists, I would say, like Virilio, the late John Baudrillard, um, Alan Badgier, Shravo Zizek, I would pick them out particularly, as people who would help us explain what this post-crash cultural condition is. And you, over the years, you've written a great deal and about Paul Rilio, as well as extending and working with the concepts and theories that he provides. What, what is it about Virilio that appeals to you so much? And how does he actually help you mobilise a critical mode of analysis? Yep, I think you're absolutely right. I have, for many years, had a kind of love-hate relationship with Virilio. He drives me nuts, but he also, I think, does explain certain parts of the world in a really interesting way. I think the fact that he comes from a phenomenological uh, perspective, whereas I kind of tend towards a more materialist perspective, has always been a problem, and I do think it holds him back. Um, and I, you know, I, th I think he's quite a singular theorist in many ways. I don't think he's anything to do with post-structuralism or post-modernism, although a lot of other people do. And I just think there was part... I think there was always something pregnant within his work that was really interesting. And the work on speed helped me, which he, he's done a, a lot of, a kind of political economy of speed, has always helped me move towards what I would call an accelerated culture. And in the new book, as you say, Football and Accelerated Culture, what I'm trying to do is to, to get to the point where we're almost spinning back on the history of sport and the history of culture. We've almost reached... Um, a, a point where we're almost spinning back and I think that's a lot to do with the media and what your great work on mobile sport media is doing is actually pushing us in that direction but I think what we're trying to do there with an, a concept like accelerated culture is somehow distinguish what we are now in and maybe what we were in say 50 years ago I know it's difficult because I don't necessarily want to be um, always arguing that we're linear. So, you know, Bauman, another great theorist, argues that we've moved from solid modernity to liquid modernity. But the trouble with that is you never know when. You never know when we've moved. And also, it's so broad that you don't really get a feel, as I say, for very specific cultural conditions, say, after the crash. But I think Virilio and his and, and, and his work on speed did definitely help me with the idea of accelerated culture. But sometimes I think he's also a break. I think that original phenomenology, which I think he comes from, um, and he's, he, he describes himself as an anarchistic Christian, you know, his, his own sort of personal development, I think, does have a break on some of this, so that um, you have to be careful how you use his work, I think. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I, it's that notion of acceleration that I find so fascinating, and I suppose, how does that then play out within football and sport more generally? Well, I mean, what is being accelerated? And, and equally, I suppose, once you hit a certain speed, what appears to be standing still in time? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I think that's a great question. And I think, I think certainly in terms of the media, the idea that um, Virilio has another concept called city of the instant or futurism of the moment. And I think that explains where we are when we're talking about what he calls live sporting events. So a World Cup, for example, say in Brazil um, in the last 18 months, that for Virilio 
is a, the city of the instant because people are on all sorts of platforms watching and, and hearing something like the transmission of a, of a live World Cup game all over the, the globe. You know, I don't know what it was, five billion people watching or three billion or whatever it was, but all at the same time in some of those games. And I think that live city of the instant, which Virilio thinks is actually replacing community, I think that the acceleration of the technology is really interesting. But I think where I would say, uh, he doesn't use it in this way, but I think it is interesting. I would argue that something like uh, soccer culture actually is based in community. Originally, you can trace the history, and we could do it with the AFL or Rugby League or Rugby Union, whatever we like. But I think in soccer culture globally, where why soccer is interesting is because it was rooted, particularly in a country like Britain, in the history of working class culture. So that idea of the people's game, which is often a cliche, actually wasn't in the first place. It did football came from a working class culture, which was resisting aspects of capitalism, aspects of ownership and property, and so on. And I don't think we should ever forget that. But the speeding up of media culture, particularly globally now, if we're watching the English Premier League, as I was this morning, uh, you know, in my home in New South Wales, uh, 8,000 miles away from, from West Bromwich Albion's ground, where they were playing Everton. Um, I think if, if we're talking about that speed, the technological speed, it's almost that the history, the working class culture of sport has been erased. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I talk about accelerated culture. We've spun it so much, we've speeded it up, speeded it up so much, we've forgotten what the damn thing was for. And it's almost uh, now, you know, disappeared, if you like, into corporate culture, into international, globalised uh, sport, which is just a, uh, a bit of entertainment to keep us, um, you know, f from actually going crazy. It's a really well-made point because there's this idea of the sporting event where its function is to present a spectacle when you it yes. could just as easily be said that the function of the sporting event is actually to, to create more media space to sell more advertising and, yes. and sort of you know various products right. and and, so, and that um, particularly in the lead up to say a grand final day where the broadcast yes. will go for eight hours yes I agree and you sort of then extend that into the notion of the digital. And you cite a really fascinating example, a, a marriage infidelity um, yes. involving Manchester United's Ryan Giggs. Yes. And then you speak about how it, it generates a tension between the policing of online behaviour in these increasingly mediated spaces, but also the supposedly libertarian politics of the internet. I mean, what are you sort of getting at in sort of describing that tension? Yeah, and I think that the gigs one was interesting, and it was actually uh, it, it, it originally that marriage infidelity, which was actually with his brother's wife. Uh, so the family has never really resolved this. Um, was actually uh, focused on by the news of the world, the, the now defunct news of the world. So you know, hello, Rupert, How, how's how's that working for you? <laughs> Uh, but this was the, the, the big gigs thing was before, and they, they, this was a classic example of tabloid, uh, you know, tabloidization. Um, and gigs, interestingly, of course, now has come out of all of this very well. He sits to the side of Louis Van Gaal at Manchester United, and is being touted as the 
next manager after Van Gaal. So he's actually uh, come out of it pretty well, interestingly, partly through his um, the, the history that he had with Manchester United and his history that he had as a respected player. But I think the, what I was trying to get at, particularly with um, the way in which social media works now, is that that's to do with speed so um, very, very quickly. You know, marriage infidelities amongst footballers are, whether they're true or not, are actually on the internet. And there was a, there was a big, um, I'm a Manchester City supporter uh, for my sins, and there was a big um, argument last season uh, where Vincent Company, who's the Manchester City uh, captain, was being linked with um, affairs with other players' wives. And it was at the time when City were actually uh, going down the pan for a few weeks. Um, but actually, the, the, the tweet about that was removed very, very quickly. It was almost so quick that you didn't see it. And I think this, that's, so the speed of social media is interesting. But I also think that the morality of social media is also interesting, as you raised about the... And I'm, I'm sceptical, I must admit, about libertarian politics in general. I'm, a from, I'm from a kind of more organised left politics, so I am suspicious of libertarianism of both the right and the left. And I was, what I was trying to do was to contextualise it and try to remind people that, you know, this Twitter or... Um, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you know, these are capitalist corporations. They're not some kind of <laughs> um, bits for our pleasure, for our libertarian pleasure. And I do think we have to get back to that idea. And again, it's partly a thought that maybe after the, the crash of 2007-8, we need to get back to more regulation anyway. The free market is some, which I think I see in, uh, in social media in particular, the free market isn't just something that's good. You know, we're just in Australia, for example, um, we've had a coup in the, um, the political sphere where Malcolm Turnbull is now Prime Minister. Uh, but I see someone like Turnbull as a, um, he's a libertarian in social sphere, but he's also a libertarian free marketeer in the economic sphere. And I think we forget how pernicious the free market idea is. And that's what I was trying to get at with the libertarian idea. I just think we have to think of uh, social media differently. You know, don't let's rush in and say this is all wonderful. And uh, well, that's certainly a perspective I would strongly endorse. Um, and you also, I mean, returning to your roots, you quite provocatively describe football hooliganism as the last of the working class subcultures to die. What, yes. are you, what are you getting at that and with that, and how does it relate to the archival research project you've been conducting? Yeah, I did, and I actually, uh, I was quoting, in that quote, I was actually quoting Cass Pennant, who's a, now a publisher, uh, but he's an ex-hooligan. He, he ran with the um, Intercity firm, the, the uh, infamous Intercity firm of West Ham United for a long time. Uh, he's now a filmmaker. He's made a film of his own. Uh, of his own life, but also quite a successful publisher and, and media guy. And he was saying that, um, and I do think there's a truth in that, and particularly in, in the kind of 40 or 50 years that I've been looking at subcultures. And I, one of the reasons why I'm interested in that is that original interest that we talked about in terms of, of music, youth culture, sport, which in Britain really has got a, a nexus. I'm not sure that it's always true in other countries, but the British nexus was 
particularly working class fashion, working class sport, and working class music. And I think those things were the things that I was interested in. So I was kind of, tr over the, the years, I tried to trace those things. And I did do a lot of ethnographic work. But one of the projects which actually started about two decades ago was a um, focus on what are called hooligan memoirs, football hooligan memoirs. In Britain, this is a really kind of low sport industry. And it did start about 25 years ago. The first one was actually uh, of hearts in Scotland. So this is players, uh, sorry, um, fans who are uh, connected to hooligan gangs, writing about their own experience. They're autobiographies, basically. Some are really badly written. Some are written by journalists and very sophisticated. But then there are now, <clears throat> in the archive that I've built here, it's actually in um, New South Wales, there are 108 football hooligan memoirs. They're autobiographies, mostly autobiographies, of hooligans who are really writing about their own lives, and I call it the kind of low-sport journalism. They're actually um, interested in telling us about which team ran from whom. Mm. Um, it's almost uh, like a, a football score. It's like a, a, the score in a game, but actually, you know, who won the battle on a particular day in 1972, for example. And it's, it's interesting. What I was able to trace in this really quite unique project from the Hooligan Memoirs and the interviews that the research team did with these uh, auto, uh, people who did the autobiographies, some of whom have been in prison, so it's a real criminology project. What I was able to trace was the contours of British hooligan gangs from the 1960s to today. And it's quite interesting because at one time this was a huge media phenomenon, not quite as much as in the past, but uh, it, it was a huge media phenomenon and international academics studied yeah. these particular problems. And even now, actually, in Australia, I get rung up by journalists who say, you know, could you talk to, if there's a problem at Western Sydney Wanderers, for example, they say, oh, you know, this must be aping uh, an aspect of British hooliganism. We don't want that. Can you tell us about it? So I do get called on quite often to do this stuff. But the actual hooligan memoir project is over quite a long period. And I say we interviewed a lot of the authors. So we said to them, We've got your book. We've followed it. You know, how did this gang develop? Um, why did you stop? And there's actually quite a lot of interesting criminological stuff there. You know, there's a lot of these people saying, well, I used to be a hooligan, but I'm all right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's about redemption. Uh, but, uh, but actually, I do think as a social history, I know it sounds crazy, but as a social history, we've now got a phenomenal amount of material which I added to with the interview, you know, the team's interviews with these people. Again, you know, some of these people were pretty hardcore criminals. Um, they, they weren't just people who had followed football. They had, you know, they grafted. They did all sorts of uh, sneak thieving um, of property and beating up of people. So, you know, they're outside the pale in many ways. But the interesting thing is we've now got a history, which is in the book, of... British hooligan gangs, 400 of them, interestingly enough, uh, all with crazy names, um, which is actually, as I say, a map of the contours of you know 40 years of sporting history. It's huge. And what do you... I mean, this, this may be uh, sort of 
something that's ancillary, excuse my uh, mispronunciation, to the actual project. But what do you make of the genre of hooligan films that have taken off, um, Green Street, you know, um, movies and things like this? What do you make of what's going on in that genre? Yeah, I think interesting, it's interesting you pick that one. Um, there is now a whole history of of those films and some very good academics, people like Emma Poulton at Durham, uh, shout out to Emma, it's fantastic, uh, and others have done some very interesting work on sports films. Um, I mean, one of the books I wrote going about 20 years ago was a book called Repetitive Beat Generation, which was my interviews with... Um, a whole host of writers, people like Irvin Welsh, uh, who did Trainspotting, um, and one particular writer at that time was a guy called John King, who's now written seven novels, including uh, Football Factory, uh, England Away, and so on. Really interesting books that people should go out and read. But John um, did the Football Factory, and then the film of basically the Football Factory and some of the other books, came out. That was probably the most realistic of all the football hooligan films. Some of the others, I think, fall by the wayside. But if you look at the Football Factory, it was pretty authentic. John was a, uh, a fiction writer, but he was a Chelsea fan, and he knew a lot of these people. Uh, and in fact, the Football Factory um, film was based on um, using real hooligans on the set. Mm. So I think the idea of realism is interesting here, and I'm really interested in realism. I think that the, some of those films are realistic, and I think they come from a really interesting point. I think some are just kind of exploitative. And another feature of your research and writing over the, the years is, you, and you mentioned it earlier, is the way you actually interweave football with popular music. And I'm, I'm reminded here of... Uh, I think my introduction to this connection was probably David Rowe's Popular Cultures from 1995. Yes. And yes. Yes. I mean, what, what, how are the two connected? And I suppose what would we miss or what do you pick up in the process of bringing them together? Yeah. I think particularly, as I say, I don't think it's necessarily always true in other countries, but in Britain, what you got, partly because it was becoming a post-industrial society from the 1970s onwards, British youth culture had all of this incredible creativity and innovation around um, sport, fashion, music. So a subculture like the mods in the early 1960s, which got revived many times, and I think is still a really powerful subculture throughout the world, mixed certain sorts of music, certain sorts of you know Italian-style fashions, uh, and also certain sorts of sport. And... I think that happened particularly later, from the 1970s onwards, late 70s onwards, with uh, a particularly uh, specific British youth culture called casuals. They, they get called all sorts of other things, but and they're still casuals today. And a lot of the football hooliganism is, is actually connected to football casual culture. And that had the nexus of sport, music, and fashion, ever-changing fashions. So instead of... People wearing colours, for example, um, from about the 1977 season onwards, sport, sporting colours, you know, Manchester United scarves or whatever, you had ever-changing uh, street fashions, which are really important as far as the casuals are concerned, and are still so today. You know, they create 
created almost international style fashions. But at, at first, it was simply a kind of street thing from a particular estate or from a particular group of people around a particular football team. And I think that history is, is still really interesting. It actually still it is a kind of underground thing. I mean, it's weird to talk about it in those ways. It became mainstream for a while, but most of the time, it was a kind of secret history. And I think British youth culture developed in a particular way. You can also see it in um, the way in which uh, the ultras have been um, uh, developed. The, the idea of the ultras has been developed around the world. Interestingly now, ultras are basically extreme fans in Italy or South America. You see that in something like Western Sydney Wanderers fans. That's where they get their style from. They take it direct from, from Italy. Mm. <laughs> but also, I think, what's interesting in Britain is that there's a renovation of, of youth culture using the ultra style. If you, if you watch games at Crystal Palace, for example, you know, a relatively lowly Premier League team, if you look at part of um, that ground, Crystal Palace, if you see any games at Crystal Palace, part of the ground at the Holmesdale Road end is actually full of what are British ultras. So there's, there's a kind of, um, what I'm talking about is a kind of style and a link to fashion, music and sport. And you, so you're, you're actually seeing it in 2015. Uh, you don't have to go back to the 1960s or 70s. Which brings us to a, a term, I suppose one of the other key pillars of your book is the, the use value of physical cultural studies, which has, yeah. of course, made me realise that there's some reading I need to do to you know, properly immerse myself in this area. What are physical cultural studies and how do you think they help advance the study of sport, leisure and popular culture? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, um, I think particularly now we're starting to catch up with this relabeling. Um, a couple of years ago I got asked by Routledge to be a reader for a new handbook and I thought, and they're doing loads and loads of handbooks, you know, fantastic. But actually this one, uh, it was called the Routledge Handbook of Physical Cultural Studies, and it's got uh, three editors: uh, Holly Thorpe in New Zealand, who's excellent; uh, David Andrews, again excellent, uh, who's British but went to the States; and Michael Silk, who's at Bath. And it, it, interestingly, Michael's department used to be the Department of Kinetics, or Kinesiology, or something like that. It's now the Department of Physical Cultural Studies at the University of Bath. And um, David Andrews in in the states in Maryland actually has again a depart you know a, he's got a physical cultural studies website with mm. lots of interesting things on. But actually, why Routledge were, were looking at it, and this is this huge handbook of perhaps uh, you know thirty or forty authors doing five thousand word um, chapters, is because. A few years ago, the Sociology of Sport Journal did a special issue called Physical Cultural Studies. And a group of scholars were starting to relabel what we, you and I would have called Sociology of Sport in the past. Um, and they were relabeling it partly because they didn't think it was always sociology, so there was lots of cultural studies. Mm. <laughs> and the sociology, particularly cosmopolitan sociology, had become pretty mainstream and there wasn't much radical stuff going on. But also, it was trying to broaden out the subject um, matter. So, work on the body, for example. Um, 
was quite important. So the, literally the idea of physical culture. And when I came to Charles Sturt University, which is where I work now, I was the head of the School of Human Movement Studies, and we actually developed a physical culture studies research group, which included people in HPE, health physical education, um, people in gender studies, in uh, sociology of sport, in exercise science, and so on. So we actually had this mass of people really interested in this work, and they started reading uh, this stuff. And I, I think a lot of the time, what I've picked up on is that these are really good scholars. Uh, the three editors that I mentioned before are really good scholars, but they are dissatisfied with the discipline which we used to call sociology of sport. And I think they're not just relabeling. I think they are pushing new concepts, new ideas into an area that perhaps has become a bit stale. And I, I find some of this work really re-energizing. And it's interesting that Routledge did, uh, in, the, in the book that I've just published with Routledge, it's in a series called Research in Sport, Culture and Society, and I was very happy with that, that they pushed the label of physical cultural studies. They were saying this book is, you know, a contribution to physical cultural studies. So maybe, as you say, you know, we should all perhaps be looking at new things here and rethinking how we labelled things before. I don't think this is just a relabeling. I think it is something that maybe is new. And you, you mentioned you're now living in Bathurst after a, a career that's seen you go from the UK to Australia to back to the UK to Canada. I mean, you know, it, it, you've travelled a, a long way. And I suppose... I've lived in regional areas and I, I'm interested in how living in a regional area and working in a regional context is influencing the work you're doing and the way you're thinking about the subjects that you write about. Yeah, I think it, it, it worries me. It, it makes me anxious every day. I was a city boy. Uh, and, I, you know, I lived in Manchester. Uh, we lived in Toronto, uh, Vancouver. Um, and, and, and in Perth, when I first moved to Australia 15 years ago, we lived in Perth in Western Australia, which is great, wonderful city. Um, come on, the Eagles. Uh, but actually, I've now become a, a, a rural person, which is really weird. But I think the fact, what we were talking about before about Verona's idea of city of the instant, I think we've become so much more technologically connected when I, you know, compared to what I was in early 2000s when I was in Perth. I was doing, I was still working in Manchester. I did 8,000 mile commutes in the early 2000s. I was, a, I was visiting professor at Murdoch in Perth and, that, and I was also a professor in Manchester. So um, I was physically moving. But I think the idea of movement, which again, I think your work has really taught us a lot about, the idea of the mobility has actually, um, we've, we've, it's come to fruition. Maybe it wasn't there 15 years ago, but I don't actually feel disconnected in Bathurst, which is a lovely place to live in rural New South Wales, or in my work. So, for example, I wrote the book, um, Football and Celerity Culture, over a period where I would write at home and in my office uh, at work at Charles State University. But I'd also go in in the morning and get emails from all over the world, particularly from Europe and North America, about what I'd sent people. So I, I was... I wasn't really, I was in that city of the instant. So I think the actual technology and the speeding up, the accelerated culture, has now helped me live in a rural area. For how long, I don't know. But actually, I think it, it helped me 
um, because I, I suddenly felt a global citizen again, and I haven't felt that for quite a long while. So I think that actually helped me with the work, and I really thank the people who did work with me like that. But also, it was, it was also on social media. So I did a lot of work around Twitter. I wrote about Brazil World Cup in 2014 as the first Twitter World Cup, but I was also getting a lot of feedback from, the, for example, the podcast and the podcast that I'd done around this work, particularly the book. And I got stuff back pretty much in that city of the instant, a bit of digital delay, but really that helped me create the, the book. So I think in some ways it, it doesn't matter as much where we live anymore. I know that sounds a bit uh, uh, optimistic, but I think we have actually shrunk the world a bit. Well, I suppose, look, um, what can we look forward to over the next couple of years from you, from you in terms of either books or projects, interesting things you'd like uh, people to know about? Yeah. Uh, I'm working on a book called Theoretical Times at the moment, which comes out next year. And that really, it takes a bit of what is in um, football accelerated culture, particularly the theoretical bits and the theorists, and tries to say that... Um, We've actually, since the, I think since the, the, the global financial crisis and its you know, extended effects, which I think are now happening, they're certainly happening in an Australian context, neoliberalism is everywhere. I think we've got something which we should hang on to, which is the theorists themselves, the people like Virilio, Berger's dead now, but people like Alain Berger, Shravo Zizek and others. I think there are some radical theorists who are now even in their own work, in their late style of their own work, having much more to say about this post-crash condition. And I think that it's certainly possible to apply those to different areas, physical culture studies, sport, sports media. But I think in general, these are theorists which seem, who seem to me to have universal concepts. I know we threw out universal concepts for a while under postmodernism, but I'm arguing that we need to bring them back. So things like justice, harm... Uh, community, culture, and so on. I think are, are concepts that we have to come back to, and that's really what the Clostropolitanism project was about, trying to revive universal concepts. But I also think that we've started to shift from disciplines, um, you know, we're talking about them today, sociology, physical culture studies, or whatever, to, um, to people who actually do have singular theory things to say. And we mentioned people like Bauman before. Um, Bauman's a good example, I think, of someone who's almost moved out of the discipline. Uh, you know, what, what disciplines are people like Badiou and Zizek in? Uh, they're actually, they've actually, we've become post-disciplinary. And I think that's what the Theory of Times book is about, trying to apply some of this work to different areas, but also to say something's happening here, even if we can't get a real handle on it. And so academic work is moving out of disciplines, uh, I think, out of mainstream work. And maybe the most interesting work, the most radical work, is to the side of disciplines. And that, I know that seems a grand claim, but I do think um, there's a renewal of people's interest. You know, we, we, we say how students aren't reading, and I can see a lot of that in the students that I teach. Um, and I do think that's a global problem. But there's also this huge thirst for radical culture, um, you know, of, of great theories, great theorists, which wasn't there before. And I do think that's connected to, again, the sort of thing we talked about before, 
um, you know, political parties in Spain, in Greece, um, not so much in Australia, but in the UK, for example, anti-austerity politics is going along with this different kind of attitude within academia. And it's very, very difficult because I think neoliberalism has taken over. <laughs> and we're all neoliberals now if we don't watch it. And I think something is happening in our culture, in our academic culture, which resists that. And that's what I call theoretical time. Well, sounds like a, a, a nice... An optimistic note to actually finish on. <laughs> now, look, thank you so much for your time and input. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Brad. It's great to talk to you. And in signing off, I recommend that anyone wanting to hear more from Steve should also subscribe to Tara Brabazon's podcast series where you can listen to discussions about social and cultural theory, higher education, graduate research and teaching, which I highly recommend for anyone who is supervising or is, in fact, a graduate student, and any number of other topics. I look forward to having your company again for episode 14 of the Media Sports Podcast Series. Until next time, goodbye.